0: So, kind of stay open to Nehemiah chapter 8. That's where we're going to be camping out today. But I want to ask you guys a question. Uh, and my question is Have you ever experienced anything in life that has fundamentally changed you? Have you guys ever had one of these milestones in life that has totally altered your life? It may be uh, a marriage. It may be a graduation. It may be something like a death in the family or a broken relationship, a change in career that has totally shifted your life, a move maybe to Ventura from somewhere else or a different move. That's okay too. But have you ever experienced anything like that that has fundamentally changed your outlook? It's fundamentally changed how you process the world, I've had a couple of those changes, and, and one of them was when Sherry, my wife, and I uh, got married. That's obviously like a really big change for somebody, and it changed me on a couple of different levels, and it didn't just stay in one particular area of, of my head that, that changed us. And I mean, it changed us both like mentally. I knew like we were we're bound together. We are partners in this life now, and I knew that in a mental kind of way. In an intellectual way, I knew our relationship was going to be different. I was going to be different, and especially during our wedding. Wedding, it cha- it affected me emotionally. Like, I, it's not just an intellectual thing. This marriage with Sherry and I, but there is like an emotional bond between us, and it has changed who I am as a person, and then I, I live differently too. There's like a, a, a purposefulness in life that is different than when I was single and, and unmarried, right? Hopefully that's the case when you get married, that there's a change in life, right? How I approach my work is different. How I approach other people is different. How I approach living, paying bills, all these different things is totally different because of this kind of milestone or momentous occasion, I would also say one of those huge changes in my life was was when I became a Christian. Uh, and so I, I don't know if this is similar to some of your stories. I, I actually grew up going to church. My parents were kind of the first Christians in their family. And so they gave us a lot of church growing up because they didn't know any different. They were like, okay, we're Christians now. So we're gonna sign you up for something every day of the week. And so I like lived at church all the time. And I was in every program that you can think of. Uh, and so I'm, I'm very thankful for how my parents raised me. But it wasn't until junior high where I sort of understood that this was, that Jesus was doing something in me. This this wasn't my parents' thing. This was something that God was doing in me. And it was kind of at that time like an intellectual processing that it happened because I understood uh, what my parents believed. And then for the first time, I was understanding, well, what do I actually believe? When I encounter the scriptures, do I believe they're true? Do I believe they're relevant to my life? Do I believe that Jesus is the one whom I'm submitting to and, and following after? And in that particular moment, for me, it was junior high camp. I know that's cliche for some people, but it was summer camp when really the Lord made himself real to me. But there was a, an emotional thing that happened. There, it was not just an intellectual thing, but it made its way to my heart where I, I firmly not just believed it, but I passionately wanted to worship him and, and live following the way he, he tells me to live. And then kind of leaving that experience, my life was different. Now, it wasn't that different because I was, you know, going to church all the time and doing all these different things all the time, but kind of having this awareness of what I believed and how it affected me changed the trajectory of my life forever. And I think when we find those big milestones and approach those big milestones in life, it doesn't just change one small area Of our life. It has a tendency to to change the entire fabric or foundation of our life and set us on a new trajectory. And I say all of that because that is exactly what is happening in this time and place, this moment in history for God's people in the book of Nehemiah. We're in chapter 8, and if you uh, kind of missed some of the background, I'm going to give you just a little snippet of a background, but I encourage you to go back and and find our previous teachings. But what's happening here in Nehemiah chapter 8 is as Ezra, this new guy on the scene that we have not met yet, he comes on the scene and he's a scribe, a teacher. He really knows the law, the Bible, the Old. Testament, right? He really knows what's happening, the Torah. And he is commanded to read. The people compel him to read the law. And the Hebrews, as they've been journeying in Nehemiah so far, faced with this change in identity as a people, right? And how they respond to Ezra's reading of the law is total, right? It doesn't just change one area of their life, but it changes everything, Their intellect is challenged again. They have this emotional attachment to God and they respond in kind. And then there's this volitional or purposeful change in their life. They set out to live differently as a result of encountering God's word in Nehemiah chapter 8. And so far, Nehemiah has been so fruitful and it's been exciting to see how this story, how God has been using this story to inform our lives today. It's been a really fun journey as a church. We're like two months in and we have uh, about a month and a half left uh, studying this book of Nehemiah. And one of the things that is easy is to look in kind of the first two thirds of the Bible and write them off as irrelevant to our lives and, and not really mattering. But what I've loved about Nehemiah is it's been this amazing reminder that this is our story too. These are our people. This is our history as God's people. And we've seen this cool overarching theme in Nehemiah of how God is restoring the identity of his people and how he's still doing that today. And there's so many things we've been learning from this incredible story in, in Nehemiah. God has led Nehemiah, this guy, and his people into a renewing period, a restoring period where they're obeying again. They're faithful again. They're seeing the fruit of their relationship with God again. So, if we kind of know any bit of history of, of God's people, we know that they've had ups and downs, to put it lightly, right? They've had times when they're faithful and obeying and worshiping God, and then they've had times where they're unfaithful and they're worshiping other gods and other things and, and kind of pursuing the way of the world. And in this moment in Nehemiah is this kind of bringing back together of God and his people. And it's been so exciting to see. And after lying in ruins for about 140 years, the wall of Jerusalem was finally rebuilt. And it was rebuilt in 52 days. It was incredibly fast. And that's important. The temple had already been rebuilt and waves of people have been coming back into the city, but the wall was still in shambles. And this was important because the wall was an important uh, identity marker for a nation and a, and a city and a group of people. So without a wall, there's practical things, like it's harder to defend, but there's even this kind of, uh, this mental thing that happens when there's no wall around the city, it's just kind of anyone can come in and out, there's really, there's no defenses, there's no kind of stake in the ground that says, this is our territory. And so this was an important identity thing for the people of God. And so the, the wall of Jerusalem was incredibly important to rebuild, and Nehemiah is, is tasked with this. God gives him a vision and all the materials and support needed for that. And so he's the cupbearer to the king. He's, he's a Hebrew, but he's living in Babylon and, he, and in Persia, and he's cupbearer to the king. So he has this tight relationship with King Artaxerxes. Right, And what happens is he hears a report that the wall is crumbling, that his people, as a result, are also not identified as God's people. And so he gets this report and he's burdened. He mourns and prays for months until the king finally asks him what's wrong. And Nehemiah tells him and the king supports his effort to go back to Jerusalem and rebuild the city He gives them materials. He gives them kind of these letters that allow him to travel and to ask materials of other people along the way. And even though Nehemiah and the the Israelite people encounter opposition, right, they succeed. Because by the time we got to Nehemiah chapter six and seven, the, the wall has been built. Their task is accomplished. But then there's this interesting thing where if the wall is finished in Nehemiah chapter six, what are the other chapters doing in the book here? Like A lot of us might even approach this as like, okay, Nehemiah is about this guy who leads the people and rebuilds the wall. And yes, that is is a part of it, but there's so much more because that doesn't even take us to half of the book. There's a lot more left. And so Nehemiah's goal is twofold. And the first is to certainly establish the wall around Jerusalem. But the second that we've seen kind of hints at and and themes of, but it's going to come very apparent starting in chapter 8 is Nehemiah's goal is to reestablish Israel as the people of God. He's there to reestablish the the covenant to honor Yahweh, to really bring back this identity in a way that we've seen glimpses of in the first few chapters. It's going to become very, very real. And the fact that Nehemiah didn't move back to, to Susa, the capital of this kingdom when the wall was complete, tells us there's a lot more to do. So shortly, kind of following the completion of the wall, we have this scene where about forty to 50,000 people, some of whom were living in the city, some kind of the, the villages around the city, come together for this worship service, right? There's the completion of the wall. There's this, this moment in history that's done and complete, and we have this huge, massive gathering of people in the city, and they demand that Ezra read from the law, This is an incredible moment for the people of God. And so we're going to read Nehemiah chapter eight. We're going to look at the entire chapter, but as we read it, notice it's kind of broken up into three natural sections. Sometimes uh, the headers in Bibles and our English Bibles are really helpful and sometimes they kind of actually distort the story. Here, I think they're a bit helpful for us. And so there's kind of three really natural breaks here. And the first one is Ezra actually reading the law and he's reminding the people of their identity through the Bible, through God's word. And, and what we'll see here is the people of God have this in intellectual response to what's happening. They finally are understanding who God is and who has revealed himself to be through the word of the Lord. And the next section we'll see is that they celebrate their identity. They not only get it, but there's this there's this celebration. There's an emotional response. They are worshiped passionately because of who God is and what he's done. And the third, the very last part is they, they live out their identity. It's not just an intellectual thing where they understand at a conceptual level who they are, and it's not even just a passionate response to who God is, but it actually changes how they live. So we're going to read all of chapter eight and then circle back around to some portions. So open up with me if you're not there, Nehemiah 8, and we're going to start in verse one. And all of the people gathered as one man into the square before the water gate. All right, just have that in your mind. 40-50,000 people gathering in this city and they're there from daybreak until noon, like 5-6 hours. In the presence of the men and the women and those who could understand and the ears of all the people were attentive to the book of the law all morning. That's impressive, right? And Ezra, the scribe, stood on a wooden platform that they had made for the purpose. And beside him stood, all right, this is going to get, we got some crazy names in Nehemiah, so just bear with me for a few verses here. And beside him stood Met, Metahiah, Shema, Ananiah, Uriah, Hilkiah, and Messiah On his right hand, and Pediah and Mishael, and Malkijah, uh, and Husham, and Hashbinadad, Zechariah, and Meshulam on his left hand. And Ezra opened the book in the sight of all the people, for he was above all the people. As he opened it, all the people stood. Okay, 40, 50,000 people gathering in the square from daybreak until midday, all right? They were attentive and they stood the entire time, right? As uncomfortable these chairs are, it beats standing the entire time, right? And Ezra blessed the Lord, the great God, and all the people answered, amen, amen, lifting up their hands. And they bowed their heads and worshiped the Lord with their faces to the ground. Also, Jeshua, Benai, Sherebiah, Jamin, Acab, Shebithai, Hodiai, Messiah, Kalita, Azariah, Josabad, Hanan, Peliaya, and the Levites helped the people understand the law. Well, the people remained in their places. They read from the book, from the law of God clearly, and they gave the sense so that the people understood the reading. Verse 9, and Nehemiah, who was the governor, and Ezra, the priest and the scribe, and the Levites who taught the people, said to all the people, this day is holy to the Lord your God. Do not mourn or weep, for all the people wept as they heard the words of the law. And then he said to them, go your way, eat the fat and drink sweet wine and send portions to anyone who has nothing ready for this day is holy to our Lord and do not be grieved for the joy of the Lord is your strength. So the Levites calmed all the people saying, be quiet for this day is holy, do not be grieved. And all the people went their way to eat, drink and to send portions and to make great rejoicing because they had understood the words that were declared to them. Verse 13, on the second day, the heads of the father's houses of all the people with the priests and the Levites came together to Ezra, the scribe, in order to study the words of the law. And they found it written in the law that the Lord had commanded by Moses that the people of Israel should dwell in booths during the feast of the seventh month. And they should proclaim it and publish it in all their towns and in Jerusalem, go out to the hills and bring branches of olive, wild olive, myrtle palm, and other leafy trees to make booths as it is written. So the people went out and brought them and made booths for themselves, each on his roof and their courts and in the courts of the house of God. And in the square at the water gate and in the square at the gate of Ephraim, And all the assembly of those who had returned from the captivity made booths and lived in booths. For from the days of Jeshua, the son of Nun, to that day, the people had not done so. And there was very great rejoicing. And day by day, from the first day to the last, he read from the book of the law of God. They kept the feast seven days, and on the eighth day, there was a solemn assembly according to the rule. Okay, so there's a lot a lot happening, and to, to help us understand what's happening, we're going to look at three different chunks. And in the first chunk, verses one through eight, when Nehemiah and the people finish the wall, the people gather into the square. And it, it doesn't really seem like Nehemiah is the one who said, okay, guys, come forward. We're going to get together for this worship service. We don't really understand how they got to that point, but they had gathered, and the crowd had demanded that Ezra, this scribe, and this teacher, this priest, read from the law. And so what's commonly understood here is that it probably wasn't just a dry reading of the first five books of our Bible, the Torah, which would have been the law of the Lord, but it was some combination of a lot of reading and a sermon. And so as Ezra was up there, he'd be reading passages, weaving together these themes and and preaching a sermon for six hours. That was kind of what was happening here. They all gathered and this massive worship service begins. And the service is centered around the reading of the law or around this sermon that Ezra is giving. Over 50,000 people gather here to learn from the Bible and to hear from God and Ezra is established as the primary leader of the morning. Now, sometimes when we study the book of Nehemiah, we'll lump in this prophet Ezra and Nehemiah together because it's sort of one unified story. And so for us, Ezra is kind of new on the scene. We don't really know who he is, but we get a little bit of definition that Nehemiah was the governor. So he was sort of the political leader. He was sort of the, the rallying guy for this effort of rebuilding the wall. And then as Nehemiah is kind of finishing the wall, there gets to be this point where a relationship with God has to be defined a little bit. And they bring in Ezra, this famous scribe, someone who knows the law really well, this famous priest for the people of Israel to kind of give them spiritual direction in this moment. So he was a priest and a scribe. He was an expert in the law. And he was also an assistant in the, the Persian Empire who served as somewhat of like a, think of it as like Secretary of State for Jewish Affairs, right? He was kind of this go-between between King Artaxerxes and the, and the Persian Empire and the Israelite people. And he went to Jerusalem in an attempt to call this wave of Jews back to their city. And this happened around 13 years before Nehemiah had arrived, but not really much had happened, right? And we even mentioned a few weeks ago that they had rebuilt the temple, but God's presence wasn't back in the temple. So it ended up being more of like a religious community center than anything else. It really didn't bring God's presence back into the city. So Ezra comes on the scene and it was kind of this this blend of Nehemiah's leadership and Ezra's leadership that gives some definition to to the people of God moving forward. And he brings 13 men, six on his right and seven on his left, and they read from the law clearly and helped people understand what was being said. And that's, that's what their job was. That's what they were doing. This was not a religious ceremony, but it was a genuine effort on the part of God's people to hear from God. Right, They knew that this is how we know who God is. This is how we understand his will for our life. This is how we understand what this relationship is supposed to look like and say, we want to hear from the word of the Lord. And so Ezra gets up there with some of the other Levites to help the people understand who God is. And we can see clearly that this was Nehemiah's heart from the get-go. It was never just about the wall, but it was this, this rebonding of God and his people, this reinitiation of the covenant that God had created with his people. And it was this call to come back to faithful living and relationship with God. Ezra praised and exalted God in this time, and the people responded with worship, right? They said, amen, amen. They lifted up their hands. They bowed their heads. There were these expressions of worship that were happening, And the Levites circulated among the people and and kind of there's there's a bit of uh, confusion. There's this word in verse eight uh, when they read uh, the law and some people uh, don't quite know what they meant by this. And so there's a couple of possible scenarios here that help paint a really good picture of what the Levites were doing among the people. And and some people hold that it, it means they were translating for the people. So the law that Ezra had that he was reading from right, was written in the Hebrew language. And by this time, most of the people spoke Aramaic right? It had been many, many years in exile and their own language and dialect had sort of evaporated. And so there were some people who still spoke Hebrew, but most of the people, and specifically in in Nehemiah chapter 13, it says all of the the kind of the generations below spoke Aramaic. They didn't speak Hebrew anymore. And so there was this need for the Levites and the scribes to be going around and literally translating what Ezra was saying and reading from the law into a language they could understand. Right? Others hold to that. It means it was making distinct or clarifying things. So maybe Ezra would preach this sermon, he'd read from the law, and we'd have some Levites circulating saying, hey, did you get that? Do you understand what he meant by that? And, and kind of circulating among the people, making sure there was intellectual comprehension happening and some uh, take it as that it was kind of broken down by paragraph by paragraph. So maybe Ezra would, would speak and read for a short time, maybe you know, 10, 15, 20 minutes, 60 minutes, whatever, and then the Levites would disperse and say, hey, okay, did you get that last chunk? Do you understand what he's saying here? Do you understand what the law said here? And then they would read some more and they would continue to circulate. And so... A lot of scholars kind of disagree on exactly what is happening here, but what I love is in each, there's probably a bit of all three of those happening at some points, and the intent in any case is to make the word of God clear for the people. So whether it was an actual translation from one language to another, or whether it was just people dedicated to the literacy of the word of God going around ensuring that people understood, the big idea was the people of God wanted to understand the law of God, And the people reading the law of God wanted to make sure the people understood the law of God. The big idea is these people were committed to the biblical literacy of their nation. It wasn't just enough for someone to read from the law, but they were committed to understand what God was saying. And so it's sort of like what we have honestly set up here. We we gather together on a Sunday and and someone will read and teach from the word of God. And then we scatter into the week in our community groups and, and kind of make sure we have some comprehension here. We unpack the truths and apply it to our lives. There's only so much you're going to get out of someone like me on a Sunday where we actually need to process it through with people. And for some of us, if we're new to the Bible, there might be some translating happening. There's a lot of words we don't really understand in the Bible for for new to to the Bible. And so it takes a little bit of unpacking and saying, okay, here's what Bert was saying, or here's what Kevin was saying, or Steve was saying. Do you understand what this means? You, you saw this word in Nehemiah chapter eight. Do we know what that word is? And let's talk about that and what it means for our lives. And so I feel like in Nehemiah chapter eight, we actually have a great picture of what the scribes and the priests were doing. They were making sure the people understood the law of the Lord, making sure they understood what they had as the Bible, right? The, the text that they had gathered together that Moses had written, that some of the other prophets had written, they had some Psalms at that point and some Proverbs at that point and they can look at that and be like, do we know what this means and do we know what it means for our life? Their intent was to know God and his story and his love for them and they knew that God spoke through his word and so they wanted to hear from God And for the first time in many, many years, the Hebrew people were eager to hear from God. This is a huge deal in the greater narrative of the story of God's people. Because for hundreds of years, they had rejected the law. They had rejected the covenant. They had worshiped other things. They had done everything God did not want them to do. And this is a huge moment where they gathered together and they say, we want to hear from God. We want him to inform how we see the world. We want him to change our hearts. We want to worship him and nothing else. And we want to live the way God designed us to live. This is a huge moment for the people of God. They knew God had expressed his will, his love, care, and commitment and voice to them through the scriptures. And they wanted to know who God was. And so that's the first section. You have this reading of the law and then the Levites circulating, making sure people understood what was happening. And then we get this next distinct section where the people of God are are celebrating their identity. And it actually doesn't start as a celebration, but it, it gets there. But what we see here is an emotional response to the law. Right once they understood what is happening as Nehemiah had or as Ezra had read and as the people are circulating helping them understood people are confronted with who God is and who they are and it causes them to mourn and to weep and to be sad and to wallow a little bit And in verse nine, it says "And Nehemiah, who is the governor and Ezra, the priest and the scribe and the Levites who taught the people said to all the people, this day is holy to the Lord, your God. Do not mourn or weep for all the people wept as they heard the words of the law. They knew they had broken this covenant. They had been unfaithful. They had distanced themselves from God. And as Ezra is reading the law and as they're understanding it, they're met with their own brokenness. Verse 10, then he said to them, go your way, eat the fat and drink sweet wine and send portions to anyone who has nothing ready for this day is holy to our Lord and do not be grieved for the joy of the Lord is your strength. And so they command the people to celebrate. I love that they just straight up tell the people what they should be doing. They say, okay, it's good that you've kind of encountered your brokenness. That's not what today is. Today is holy. Go get good food, get good wine, share with people and celebrate because the Lord is doing something special today. As they were hearing the word of the Lord proclaimed, they were rightly convicted of their sin. And this is an interesting moment for them because when we encounter our own sin, it should cause us to be sad. It should cause us to to look at our lives and and mourn for a little bit and weep that we've distanced ourselves or that we've disobeyed God. But what I love is they don't keep them there. There's deep grief over their sin, but they don't stay there. He said, go and celebrate because God is a forgiving God. He is a graceful God, a merciful one who wants a relationship with you. We might read this and sort of expect Ezra to be pleased that they're mourning, right? Saying, oh, it's good. Yeah, go ahead and wallow. You guys have been bad boys and girls for the last 150 years in exile. You know, you guys, as we've been building the wall, you constantly give into the temptation of fear and he does not uh, allow them to stay weeping and mourning because in the Torah, God's expectations of his people are always set in the context of who he is. And as they're reading the Torah, they're not meant to focus on themselves and all the wrong that they've done. As they're reading the law and understanding the law, they're meant to look upon God and all that he's done to rescue them. When we see God identifying and defining himself in the earlier books in the Old Testament, it's usually attached with, I'm the Lord your God who did this for you, who brought you out of slavery in Egypt, who brought you to the promised land, who defeated these armies for you. In his relationship with his people, God is always providing the context. And the context is who he is. The context is never who we are. God overcomes that all the time. The context for the reading of the law is look at how amazing God is. Ezra and Nehemiah and the Levites help people understand the context of their day. There will be a time for grieving and and looking at their own sinfulness, but he says that time is not right now. The first thing to do is to celebrate the holiness of the moment because God is restoring their identity. And I love this because unless we are reminded to rejoice in these type of things, we are inclined to forget to do so. And we often forget the events themselves. So, so often in the Israelites' history, they they built these things called Ebenezers or altars or monuments for something God had done. And they do that so they don't forget what God had done. Right? It's so easy when we cry out in a moment of need, God, save me from this. Help me in this. God, give me the power to do this. He does it. He comes through and answers the prayer. And then we move on and we forget the things he has done. And when we forget the things he's done, it's easy to look inward and, and wallow in our lives and wallow at our current situation and just wish they were better. And what Ezra, and Nehemiah, and the Levites do say remember the faithfulness of God. Remember his passionate, relentless pursuit of you as his people, and how even though you would continue to disobey and disobey and disobey, he's restoring you as a people. Ezra commanded God's people to move beyond their grief to a place of celebrating the forgiving grace of God. And we see that God's intention as we learn his scripture is that, yeah, we'd be convicted of our sin, but that leads us to to godly remorse and a desire to live more the way God had designed so when we encounter who God is and his word, it should shine the spotlight a little bit on us and see, yes, here are the areas that I've messed up, but even more so, it should shine a spotlight on the glorious graciousness of God and his forgiveness. And say, yeah, yeah, yeah you fell short in all these ways. Everybody does. We're all in the same playing field, Paul tells us in Romans. Like we've all sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. But what's important in the story of God is how graceful I've been, how merciful I've been, how I've forgiven you regardless of what you've done. There's no sin too great, no baggage too much, or no story gone too far that God cannot redeem. And we understand that Jesus died to take away our sin and replace it with righteousness, So the final work of the gospel must be worshipful joy. And so even if mourning over sin is the process we go through, the end result is always rejoicing in the goodness of the Lord. And that's what Ezra and Nehemiah and the Levites lead the people in. He said the end result of hearing the word of the Lord should be celebration. Go rejoice. Have an amazing meal. Make sure no one goes hungry. Everyone have a big party and enjoy the grace of God. Anyone who has not experienced joy after repenting of sin misunderstands the gospel of grace. It may be right for a moment to, to, to feel sad about sinfulness or to mourn in our own sinfulness. But after we repent and experience the grace of God, there is rejoicing. And if there isn't, we don't really get what grace is. We don't really get that Jesus died so that when we do repent, we experience worshipful joy because God has wiped the slate clean. He's forgiven us. He's called us into a new kind of life. And when we misunderstand this gospel of grace, when we continue to wallow and mourn in our sin, we defy God's intentions for how we should live. God doesn't want us to be faced to the ground all the time, being sad, weeping, and mourning. He wants us to enjoy him and to rejoice in his forgiveness and grace, living in light of what he's done rather in light of what we've done. There's a a theologian uh, called Warren Worsby. Probably no one's ever heard of him. I didn't until a couple of weeks ago. But he has this great quote I wanna share with you guys. And he says, it is as wrong to mourn when God has forgiven us as it is to rejoice when sin has conquered us. I'm gonna read that one more time. It is as wrong to mourn when God has forgiven us as it is to rejoice when sin has conquered us. If we look to the story of Israel, the moment they are farthest from God is when they're rejoicing in their sinfulness, their anti-God living, worshiping other idols. That is the, the darkest bottom, rock bottom pit of Israel's stories when they celebrate in their wrongdoing. What Nehemiah and Ezra tell us here, it is just as wrong to mourn when God has already forgiven us. God has called us to live differently. He went to great lengths so that we would be forgiven and have a reconciled relationship with God. And God calls us to celebrate that, not to mourn in that. There's a reason for the moment and the purpose of this particular worship service is to rejoice in the joy of the Lord because it's their strength, what Nehemiah says. They are there because it was God's joy to bring them there and to redeem them. God is with them. He's orchestrating all of this. He's bringing together those who were scattered and broken and without identity around the world because of their disobedience. And today's the day to celebrate that God is bringing his people back together. God's restoring their identity and that's worthy of celebration, they tell us. So the wall's finished. They demand Ezra, renowned scribe and priest of the people of Israel to read the law. They understand it, they comprehend it, maybe for the first time ever. They're convicted of sin, so they repent, they mourn and respond in worship, but they're called to celebration. And they experience this journey from intellectual understanding to evoking an emotional response where they're passionately worshiping God. But it doesn't end there. They heard it, it affected them, but did it actually change anything? Because we've seen that with the people of God before. They heard it, they were called back to repentance and they worship God, they make their sacrifices and they go back to living the wrong way. And so the third piece of this puzzle is found in the last five or so verses here, starting in verse 13. Did it change anything? Are their lives any different? And the answer is yes, it changed something. There was a living in their identity that happened. There was a purposeful or volitional response to the passionate worship and the intellectual understanding. There was a change in living that occurred. And so in verse 13, on the second day, the heads of the father's houses of all the people with the priests and the Levites came together to Ezra the scribe in order to study the words of the law. So they came together for these Bible studies so they could understand even deeper. Verse 14, and they found it written in the law that the Lord had commanded by Moses that the people of Israel should dwell in booths during the Feast of the Seven Months. Okay, so this is a little strange. So we're going to take a side track just for a moment to talk about what this feast or celebration of the Booths were, right? Because they come across it in the scriptures and they say, they're meeting together for these Bible studies. They come across it in the word of the Lord. They're like, well, what is this Feast of Booths? We got to do this. We haven't been doing this for a while. We got to understand what this is. I love that because I feel like it happens so often with me and the people I talk with that we come across something in scripture like, oh, what is this? We should be doing that. It says it right here in the Bible. We should be living this out. Let's, let's figure out what this means. So they found it written in the law. And I love the immediate simplicity here. They said, okay, we got to do this. It's, it's here in the Bible. There was no like, oh, well, contextually, that's not for our day or culturally things were different when we we're in the wilderness of the promised land. Now, it's, now we're in exile. We don't have to do these things we do. No, they look at it and say, oh, shoot, guys, it's here. Let's do this. Where, where do we get booths? We got to figure this out. I'm imagining like a bit of a carnival here happening. So let me, let me paint a picture about what's happening with the booths here. It was one of three pilgrim festivals or holidays prescribed in Leviticus, right? A traditionally exciting book if you've never read it. Uh, and this occasion provided an opportunity for the people to renew their, their commitment to Yahweh. So this was around the beginning of their year. The seventh month, it was kind of around the beginning of their year. And it was this moment they came together and said, We are renewing our relationship with you, Yahweh. So we can understand why they hadn't done this in a while, because they've been in exile and in disobedience for a long time. And the point of this festival in particular was to remind Israel of God's faithfulness in bringing them out of Egypt. Because when God brought them out of Egypt, they had a really cool weekend camping party for 40 years while they were trying to find the promised land. But God had provided for them. So even though they weren't in the promised land, God was providing food on a daily basis. He was winning battles for them. He was allowing them to kind of make their journey in. And so this festival was to remember that. It's a reminder of redemption after years of captivity. So this feels very appropriate after being in exile in Persia for a long time. This feast is found in Leviticus 23 and it's supposed to be celebrated kind of in the middle to end of the seventh month. And so since they discovered this feast on the second day of the month, the timing was perfect for them. They were immediately ready to obey what God had told them there to do. This Feast of Booths, or sometimes it's called the Feast of Tabernacles, was meant to force Israel to recall their tenuous post-Egypt life, where they lived hand to mouth every day and they camped every day for 40 years. In the midst of Israel's settled life in the land, this was meant to remind them of all God had done to bring them to that point. So in the midst of what was also kind of a harvest festival, they remember that life can be a wilderness. And whether it has been manna, right, not so amazing bread, but still provision from God, or a plentiful harvest reaping their land and their farms, their only sustainer is Yahweh. That's what this festival was designed to do, was remind them in plenty and in little, God is their provider, For us, in plenty or in little, God is our provider. And this this festival, this Feast of Booths was meant to remind the people of that fact and that reality. And they come across it and immediately in verse 16, they go out. So they come across this, they found it written in the law that the Lord had commanded. And in verse 16 or verse 15, they're told, okay, go to the hills, bring branches of olive, wild olive, myrtle palm, and the other leafy trees make booths. And the people respond in verse 16, yeah, we're going to do this. Cool. Like, I don't, I don't know if there was questioning or like a little back and forth, but it's not in the text. We have this beautiful simplicity of they heard the word and they were commanded to go out and do the thing. And they did the thing. It's just a beautiful picture of, of obedience, and it gives a little snippet into what this life, this new life with God, this reestablished life could be. They understand the words of the Lord. People are explaining it to them. There's comprehension among the people. They're, they worship, right? So, I mean, think of it a little bit what's happening this morning. We, we spend some time worshiping God. We are in the text together, understanding and kind of teaching from the text you know, and then we go out and make some booths or something like that. But there's like this immediate response where God gave them an opportunity to obey right away. Big worship service, they teach them the word, they respond in worship, and God immediately gives them an opportunity to say, Is this real? Are you really coming back to life with me? Here you go. Remember all that I've done for you. Go out, have a big party. Build your booths. Eat and drink the way I'm, I'm telling you to. Make sure no one has need. Be generous. Be inclusive. Go and obey what you find in the word of the Lord. When the people of God encountered the truths of Scripture, this was not just an intellectual or emotional response, but one that changed their life. There was this moment when they had decided to change the way they operated and lived because of God's word. And it's sometimes easy, I think, for us to pick and choose what truths of scripture we're we're gonna grapple with or we're gonna live out or we're gonna obey today. And we have such a simple and beautiful picture that when they encountered the word, they worshiped and they went out and lived differently. People heard the word, they understood it, and it brought them to deal with their own lives and sinfulness. And they worshiped and they went off and lived differently. And as we look to the story of Nehemiah, We're able to see the whole scripture and for us we have the benefit of the whole scripture and we're able to see that Jesus is this ultimate fulfillment of everything that we read in the book of Nehemiah. He's the fullest picture of grace that the people of Israel were experiencing right now. They were just getting a shadow of what the fullest picture was meant to be. They received the grace of God but ultimately it's meant to point back to Jesus, the full version of redemption and life with God the kind that they longed for for hundreds and hundreds of years. As we seek to understand what God is saying to us through this text, the most apparent to me as I was even praying for you guys is that Jesus is the ultimate reality. He's the ultimate answer to the reality that the more we learn about God, the more we read scripture, the more we're going to encounter our own sinfulness. And Jesus is the ultimate remedy for that. And so there should be this, this kind of weird tension we feel when we read about who God is and his love for us and his holiness and all he's done for us, and then we look inward at our own life like, oh man, I've fallen short here, or this relationship is weird here. I haven't really been living up to what God has for me here. I think we're meant to feel a bit of that tension, but also to look to Jesus as the ultimate solution for that and to say he's the only one that can fully reconcile and redeem us and, and set us on this new way of living where we don't have to worry about how much we've let God down or let other people down or how much we've fallen short. We don't worry about that anymore because Jesus has answered that problem for us. What we celebrated last week as we celebrate the resurrection. That's what we celebrate. We get to rejoice at the power of the gospel of Jesus to reconcile us to God. And the second thing I think for us to grasp is when we approach God's word, there should be an intellectual response. It should trigger something. It should cause us to think and and chew on something for a little bit. I hope something in God's word today will kind of stick with you for the rest of the day and you'll kind of think about it and like, oh man, that was weird. Why did Ezra do this? Or why did the people respond like this? It should get our minds going. And there should be an emotional response, right? It should cause us to worship. What Peter's gonna do for us in just a moment is not to perform a show but to lead us into worshiping God passionately and that what fuels our passion for worship is, is God and who he is and what he's done and, and what that makes us. And we find his story in God's word. And it should evoke a volitional response or a purposeful choice to live differently. It should change our lives. Or we should walk, whether it's a, a big change or a small change, we should walk out of here thinking about God's story, Nehemiah chapter eight, having worshiped him together and think, man, how am I going to live different? How am I gonna allow the word of the Lord to influence my life? And there are dangers to only having one out of those three responses. And if it's too intellectual, it becomes academic and a study for us. If it's just emotional, then we're we're being blown to and fro, like Paul says in Ephesians, not being grounded in the word. And if it's just a, a volitional or an obedience thing, that turns into legalism because we're just doing actions and not really understanding why our lives should be different. And so the reality is that we're called to all three of those responses this morning. And so today, what we're gonna do is Peter's gonna join me up here. He's gonna lead us in a celebration of who God is. And it's gonna start with recognizing the holiness of God. It's gonna, he's gonna sing a song that's gonna express a lot of characteristics of God that are meant to sort of do the distance thing just a little bit to say, man, how amazing are you, God? You're holy, you're far beyond my mind, far beyond what I can comprehend. But the truths of the gospel are eminent in that song, in the next few songs, that he has done the work to bind us together. The first message of the gospel is hope. We see this in the life of Jesus when he encounters Zacchaeus when he encounters the woman at the well, when he encounters all these broken, distance people from God, the first message is hope. Be reconciled to God and know that your life is more than what you see here and now. The first message of the gospel is restoration of God and his people, and it's a good thing, and it's worthy to be celebrated. So as we grow, it can become helpful to reflect on the things that have got us to this point. But the thing we celebrate when we gather together is not our own sinfulness or all the good we've done, anything like that, but it's to celebrate the goodness of God and his relentless pursuit of you. He is a holy God. We are a broken people, but he did all that needed to be done to bring us into a good relationship where we don't have to shy away from God, but we can passionately worship him and thank him for all that he's done.